Welcome back to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox, two rather insecure creative frauds who will be exploring the motivating and sometimes debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower if you let it. Stu Turner, ECD at the Royals in Melbourne, and uh, I've got the pleasure today of introducing Damon Stapleton to the podcast. Um, Damon and I go way back. He actually hired me out of um, ad school, and he said to me, I said, well, I need to finish ad school, and he said, well, I can offer you a job now, and I said, uh, I just need an internship, and in, in the most beautiful Damon way, he looked at me over his glasses and said, I'm offering you a job, idiot, <laughs> and so... I took the role, um, uh, had to beg my ad school to give me my um, diploma at the end of it, um, and then have worked with Damon a number of times over the years at TBWA, um, Saatchi and Saatchi, DDB, and now he's um, all the way in New Zealand, uh, CCO at the Monkees. Um, and one thing I can say about Damon, um, you know, I, I'm, I put him forward for this podcast, but the one thing I can say about him that he probably won't say about himself is that when it comes to imposter syndrome and not knowing who you are or thinking you don't have the answers or you're not good enough. Damon developed, and every time I was with him in every department I worked with him, he developed an atmosphere where that was okay to be that kind of unconfident and scared. It was such a safe place. I think most creatives who've worked with him can testify to that, that in that place of just, it's okay to not have the answers. Actually, that gave you the courage and the bravery and the space to actually come up with ideas and not be so scared about your own insufficiencies and your own imposter syndrome. And so that was something that Damon has always done. And I just love them for it. It's just a, a, a beautiful humility and a confidence that comes from the place of, well, you know, I don't know where the answer is, but I'll try and find it. And I might not be the best, but I'm going to give it my best. So um, it's an absolute pleasure to introduce Damon to the podcast today. So welcome to the Imposterous, the Imposterous Damon Stapleton. Great to, to have you here today. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I thought we'd just get into this. I wanted to ask you about um, our ideas and how, you know, and also our careers mm. live and die on what people think of them. And I, I heard you once talking about uh, us being in the business of someone else's opinion. And on this podcast series, we like to explore the, you know, negative and positive effects you know, potential emotional benefits of having a career, what is essentially someone else's opinion. And I just wonder, how do you keep going? You know, keep on producing the great work that you do, start up an agency, knowing that all it takes is someone to say, I don't like it. Mm. Does the roller coaster of, of advertising continue to tick up for you? Well, it's definitely not boring. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, 25 years in, it's not boring. But I think... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, this idea of being an imposter, right? Um, a lot of advertising today is about creating this idea that there are facts. Um, but as you pointed out, it's actually a business of opinion. The, the real thing that makes advertising so interesting is most ideas happen probably because of belief. 
even though it's not something that people speak about that much. It's normally because somebody really believes in an idea or a group of people believe in an idea. So I think that's the thing that I always look for is, is the confidence or the certainty of somebody. Um, and that's what I find exciting is, you know, when you find a group of people that truly believe in an idea, that, that always gets me up in the morning where people are going to go for it and, and you don't know what the outcome is. And that belief's contagious, isn't it? That belief or disbelief can kind of spread and can carry. Yeah, because like you say, somebody cannot like an idea. And I've seen it in rooms where somebody suddenly, two or three people do like an idea and and the room shifts. Same idea, nothing's changed, but belief. And it's, it's a very unfashionable thing to talk about these days is belief. You know, it's quite a sort of... You know, you've got all these things like programmatic and and there's all this thing about data and stuff. But often the reason an idea goes through is because of belief. And I, I always say that it's easy to have 100 ideas. It's hard to care about one. And and I think that there's a sort of a tendency to, if, if you have a lot of ideas, everything's going to be fine. But at the end of You're the day, right. someone has to make the decision and someone has to back something without that much data that it's going to work. Yeah, and, and that's that's a difference, isn't it, between, I guess, belief and believing in something and having faith. You kind of have yeah. the faith that something's going to come, that you, you that's trust. But then yeah. when something does, believing in that is very important. Well, I was going to say we're, we're a bit like invisible car salesmen. You know, we're, 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 we're like, <laughs> yeah. do you want to buy it? But, you know, nobody can see it. And, and that's always the tension in advertising. There's this gap. There's this leap you always have to make. This is the story of a trillion-dollar campaign and how we turned money into a medium. Zimbabwe has been destroyed by the Mugabe regime. And if a journalist mentions any of this, they are beaten and driven into exile, which is exactly what happened to our client, a newspaper called The Zimbabwean. They will get arrested and get bashed by the police. But intimidating the Zimbabwean was not enough for the Mugabe regime. They declared the paper a luxury and put a tax on it in foreign currency that makes it unaffordable for the average, impoverished Zimbabwean. This is a dictatorship that stays in power by printing money and crushing freedom of speech. To get the paper into Zimbabwean hands, it needs to be subsidized, and our client can only do that by raising awareness and driving sales outside Zimbabwe. So we developed a unique solution. One of the most eloquent symbols of Zimbabwe's collapse is the Zim Trillion Dollar Note, a symptom of their world record inflation. This banknote and the dizzying escalation of notes that preceded it cannot buy anything, not even a loaf of bread, and certainly not any advertising. But it can become the advertising. We took this useless currency, cheaper than paper, and printed our messages all over it. The money became the media. In rush hour traffic, millions and billions were given out, one note at a time, at Johannesburg's busiest intersections. We handed out money at shopping malls, universities and street corners. We even sent bundles of cash to captains of industry, politicians and media personalities. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about um, being promoted quite young as well, because um, you're an ECD at 32. Yeah. And... You know, that's no Dave Droger story, who I think was an ECD at 14 and used to kind of use his walkie-talkie yeah. to patch the ideas in. But um, <laughs> we do remain one of those industries that promotes talent quickly and young. 
Yeah. Any hell stories of feeling in over your head and any advice you give to the young yeah, CCO out there? I don't think you have the time for all my hell stories. Yeah, I was I was made ECD of an agency called TBWA Hunt Lascaris, which is quite a big famous agency in South Africa when I was quite young. And I mean, if I'm honest, it was probably a couple of years too early. And I think that's a lot to do with understanding the job of being an ECD. There's a strange, you know, it's because it's both, you know, creative and creative director have the same word in the title, but they're very, they're very different jobs. And, you know, if you're 31 or 32 years old and you're presenting to a 50 year old CEO of a bank, you know, you're probably worried about your PlayStation. He's probably worried about his prostate, you know? So, yeah, these are very different worlds. Um, so I, I had to learn very quickly how to move into that world because I think you move from the world of having ideas to the world of maybe shepherding and selling ideas. And, you know, the thing about creatives is you can have all the ideas you like inside an agency, but if they don't get made, that's not fun. Um, so I think, I think the biggest learning for me was how to learn to sell and I think if you look at the really great creative directors, your John Hegarty's, your Dave Drogas, they're great salesmen. And um, I think that's maybe the one thing that we don't really talk about is how to sell an idea and not just to have an idea. Yeah, you mentioned um, you mentioned that idea of being a shepherd and, and, and shepherding. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, for the imposterous, that's something that uh, we really like the, the, the sound of, the idea of kind of taking – you take people through and you take work through and you take culture and businesses through as as you're you're guiding it, which there's a big benefit to that as opposed yeah. to you know screwing up layouts and having a shot for the bin, which happened to me. And I heard you talking about oh yeah, years lighter to my one first, of your layouts. My first creative director used to talk to me, and and in those days you'd mount stuff up on boards, and he he he'd hold his zipper lighter underneath the board while he was talking to you, and then you'd smell burning. And then you just see your layout bubbling in the center. And that's how you used to you used to bomb your work. And then you'd throw the flaming board at you across the room and you'd start again. <laughs> oh, where are uh, those days? Yeah. But I think I think those there, there was a uh, you know, in the early days for me, there was this thing about fear. Fear was the thing that drove a lot of creative departments. But I think the reason that I'm interested in this idea of shepherding is because if you look at a, an integrated idea now, it can take 12 months. You know, it can take a year and a half. That means you have to take a lot of people with you on that journey. And um, I think Paul Klee, he's one of the great, you know, great 20th century artists, said an idea is not a is not a dot, it's a line. And, you know, I think that's very true in our business as well. You know, in the old days, if you did a TV ad or a print ad, it was sort of a dot. But now it's how you join all of these things up. And to do that, you need a lot more people. And you have to look after a lot more people. So I do think the job in terms of how you manage people's changed quite a lot for me in my career from when I started, which was, you know, guys throwing flaming boards at me <laughs> to now where you, you have to motivate people. And, and the thing is, you're, you're going to see them the next day and the day after that. And that's quite different to doing a one-off project. So I, I think those are really important things to think about as a, as a creative director. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of this job which is about connecting, isn't it? It's kind of like being able to connect different groups or teams or individuals by that idea to kind of say, hey, that might work with 
this this person, which is you know quite different to when the media channels were, you know, less let's say or less connected. And you know, let's be honest. I think all creatives, on some level, feel like imposters. So I think that one of the great things you can do as a ECD or a CD is create a space or an environment where creatives feel like there's some safety. Um, you know, it's it's a funny thing. No one ever talks about why do some agencies do better work than other agencies? You know, why does an agency like Crispin Porter do better work? Is it just because they've got better people or is it because there's a better environment where you're allowed to have stupid ideas or ideas that don't make sense and you don't get shot down? You know, and I, I think that's a big part of the recipe. I, I think talent's a big part, but also letting that talent do what it does is the other side of, of that coin. Welcome to tonight's Lotto Draw. Now, by now you'll know that the latest Powerball ad is way more than just an ad. It's also a ticket to a $10,000 prize. There are numbers hidden throughout the ad. That's right. The ad is about a woman searching for a lost lotto ticket. Has anyone seen my ticket? You're kidding. But the audience is frantically searching as well. Please tell me you found the ticket. An interactive site turned that search into a game. But the lost numbers were hard to find. So we drip-fed people clues on social media and even the national draw. And now it is time for tonight's clue. And it is, there is a number here for those who are patient. As the news hit the media, we were getting 1,500 entries every hour. Hundreds of thousands of people searching frame by frame. In fact, the only thing they weren't doing was skipping the ad. And by the time we'd announced the 11 prize winners, 53,000 people had managed to find all seven numbers. Social engagement was up 400%, and people had spent 872 days on the site watching a 90-second lotto ad, which for the first time was actually a lotto ticket. I wanted to ask about the the idea that this job, in a way, without trying to sound too emo, because I tend to take up that role <laughs> on this on this podcast, is 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 <laughs> is, is potentially a, a a lonely job insofar as you kind of carry uh, to a degree the the thought that this idea could be something, and and I've found being connected. I rarely talk about award juries, but people always talk about being on juries with people and you make lifelong friends over someone with someone that you've bonded with over a few days over work. And I just wondered um, in your feeling and the, the, the confidence that we get from each other as a, as a community of, of creatives and if there have been any standouts for, for you that you've kind of met along the way that have really influenced you. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, it's like lifelong friends for five minutes. Um, you know, when you judge and you see these guys and you have these intense experiences and then you don't see them again. It's a strange, strange world. But I suppose where I was lucky is early on I had some mentors and I really, I didn't really understand the value of, of some of the mentors I had when I was younger. So the, there was a creative director called John Hunt who ran TBWA Hunt Lascaris. I saw you interviewed Fran Lucan. Yeah, so it, it was sort of a bit of a university for a lot of a lot of South African creatives. Um, and there was this idea, creativity was valued, 
So he was somebody that definitely shaped my career. But then I would just say creative departments where over, I suppose I've always tried to believe in holding on to creatives. You know, I think Niels Leonard was talking about how in the early days he tried to pay everybody, you know, fairly. And, but I do think there's a value in a creative department where there's some continuity. And if you look at the really great creative departments, it's normally because there's people that have been there for a couple of years together. And that sort of camaraderie is, is, it's a very rare thing, you know, because normally people are in an agency for 18 months or two years. But um, it's definitely something I felt at Handelskars. It's something I felt at DDB, where the creative department was sort of almost unchanged for seven years. And, and that gives you almost like a telepathic sort of way of working. And mm. um, I think that's one of the ways that I – uh, you know, you talk about loneliness. I think loneliness is when you're in a creative department and you feel isolated or you feel like everything you're saying is going to be a mistake. Um, and I think for a junior creative, that must be, a, you know, that's a terrifying experience. So I think that's where the loneliness comes from is this idea that you can't do anything right. That, that I think, is a very dark place to be. So, you know, I always try to create a space where, you know, if you screw up, it's only advertising, man. We can, you know, we can fix it. We can make it better. Um, and I think that support is something that, you know, I've always valued in other creatives as well. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I, I guess that kind of takes us um, to, I wanted to ask you about Damon's brain, stuff I think about instead of world domination. And you you rack up <laughs> 10 years this year. Yeah. And, you know, we hit a milestone this year as well, which is six months. So, you know, yeah. fair play. We're, we're the same, mate. We're the same. It's, well, I it's, sort of did it. I sort of did it for the probably the same reason you did it. Um, when I started, uh, I did it because I wanted to see if anyone else there was thinking similar thoughts. You know, I, I suppose it was a bit uh, a way of reaching out to people, um, and then it just sort of took off. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I mean, you know, the fact that you state that this one's for the creatives. I think yeah. that that clearly says that there's a group of people I feel very strongly about and I'm going to make something that's for them. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about the importance of this particular community of misfits that you write for and how yeah. making them feel good about themselves and feeling like they're understood, how that um, potentially benefits you. I, I mean, I, want to ask, <laughs> I wanted to ask you if, you know, if any blog entries feel like a juice cleanse. <laughs> like you kind of, you know, you kind of, you, you have this thought and you go, dang, I've got to actually yeah. share that. And I've got a blog that lets me do that. Do you feel lighter after some of it? Yeah, it's a sort of like a verbal colonic, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, there are things that when I started writing it, it was very much about, uh, I, I sort of had a little bit of anger because I used, I used to feel that everybody used to write about creatives, but most of the people were not creatives. So that's where For the Creatives came from. It's like, you know, very few people know what it's like to stare at a blank piece of paper or a blank screen and you've only got two hours to crack something. You know, it's easy to tell people why an idea is good after it's been made. It's much harder to, you know, fasten your seatbelts and, and try and make it happen. So that, that was where it began. Um, I, I started to try and articulate what it feels like to be a creative and then, I suppose I broadened as I wrote more and more just about the idea of what is creativity, you know, because it's it's one of those things that get gets bandied about all the time. You constantly hear clients go, "We need creative solutions. We need out of the box thinking. 
you know, you hear all of that jargon and you go, but what is it? And and who decides what creativity is? Um, so it kind of morphed from me being angry with, I didn't feel like I had a voice and then I didn't feel like create, creative people had a voice. And then it's kind of probably mellowed into, uh, let's just talk about creative ideas and, and why creativity is so valuable and why we should protect it. So that was sort of a, a character arc, but I still write ones occasionally where I just lose my shit and um, <laughs> go, I fucking hate this and I'm going to put some shit down. Um, so, you know, I suppose that's my juice cleanse occasionally. And, and and you've obviously connected with, you know, people from all around the world who have kind yeah. of gone, yes, Damon, what you're saying, I'm living that too, you know. Thank God you're saying it this way because had- it gives me an outlet. Yeah, I've had weird, you know, I've had people asking me for career advice from Minneapolis. And I'm, de- I mean, I'm definitely not qualified Rug to up. tell someone. Yeah, maybe, yes, yes, stay warm. Um, but it, it does, what it does tell me is creatives are a tribe and we all have the same problems, which I guess in a strange way is scary and comforting. But you talk to somebody in New York or you talk to somebody mm-hmm. in London, they have exactly the same issues and challenges and problems as you. And you know, that kind of tells you that this is very much a human business. You know, this is not, you know, because if, if, if this is all about best practice, right, we should have, all ads should be great. The process should be streamlined. Everything should work perfectly. And, you know, we should all go home at five. That doesn't happen. And that doesn't happen because of people. There's no other reason. So, you know, hopefully maybe just that shared experience can help people occasionally. You hear a lot about Apple's walled garden, walled garden, walled garden to lock in users to its walled garden. A billion dollar battle royale between Apple and Epic Games. How about his next one? Samsung, they did something. If you and I were from the UK, we would say that they did something cheeky. I'm not really used to Android. I never had an Android device, but here we have now the chance to experience Android on our iPhones. Yes, you heard that right. When I click next and watch this, you click let's go and look at the phone. (laughs) This is pretty crazy. Now, if you've been with iPhone for a long time and it's all you really know, then that could be stopping you from even stepping into the Android ecosystem. And that's what Samsung is trying to fix today. It's buttery smooth, guys. You have the side cards, the Google search up top. This is insane. I'm getting notifications. Welcome to the other side. It's just really fun. Like everything has something unique when you click on it. You can launch apps. You can tap on widgets. You can even change themes. So right now I have this theme on. I'm going to hit apply and it'll change over to this theme just like you would on any other Galaxy phone. Yeah, and I think the the piece that you wrote that I wanted to ask you about, which kind of does point out the fact that, you know, I, I, I would have said something like creativity is a messy business as a way to kind of make an excuse as to why we might need more time. Time or, 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 you know, why things aren't where they should be when we said they would. But you talked um, in, you know, your, your piece on the unfortunate way ideas happen where you talk mm. about the Beatles and coming to the point of get back as this moment of relaxed, focused, fun, desperation, self-belief and all these ingredients and a little pressure. Do you think that we get there with work often enough? Are we... Do we work in a way? Can we structure ourselves in a way that um, I know? You know, every song's not going to be get back. No. But how do we no. get there more often? 
Yeah, I think it's it's a real interesting question, right? Because I go, on the one hand, uh, a lot of those ingredients, if you watch that documentary, it's like they're just drinking tea and smoking. And they seem to be doing nothing. But this is when I was talking earlier about a creative department that's been together for a while, is that when somebody's got something, everything clicks into place. Um, everybody jump, you know, Ringo, I think at one point is asleep. And then like he plays, John Lennon plays two chords and he's suddenly awake and he's playing a drum beat. Yeah, he's just there. Yeah, there's like a boredom. There's like a boredom with the brilliance or there's like a, there's like, it's like a meditation. Yeah, it's like this sort of weird soup of banality. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, (laughs) this little idea comes out of it and then everybody's on it. So I think one of the great problems is time. Um, Because if you look at how long it took them to do that, in our business, that would have been compressed. Um, We wouldn't have had the same amount of time to do it. And I think that's often um, one of the great challenges is how do you sort of have fun underwater? You know, you're under pressure. So how do you keep that sense of fun and relaxed nature? I mean, I've just written a blog now and there's a quote in it from Einstein, which is creativity is intelligence having fun. The fun aspect is not frivolous. It is actually something, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Mm. is, Mm. you know, how many times have you heard in a creative department somebody going, I know this is stupid, but, and then five seconds later, everyone's jumped on and goes, no, 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 that can be great. Having that space to do that is where ideas come from um and i i I don't know i think people think there's another way it's like if we just get four guys from liverpool and put them in a studio and we give them the same haircuts you know we'll get the same songs and i just go well that's it's just not how creativity works i think people want creativity to work in a more streamlined effective way but the very glitchiness of creativity is Mm. how you get new stuff yeah, I mean, so I, I think that there's also the the counter to that, which where someone will say something like, "Nothing works like a deadline," but yeah. that that can be, and I'm not saying that that's the only enemy, but that can be the thing that kind of erodes at the time that gives you confidence to actually relax and, like you say, you know, have the fun deadline the, the deadline thing is you. I mean, uh, there was an agency I worked at once said, "We don't make deadlines; we make ads." Um, which I think we had to take down off the wall. The clients didn't like that. Um, but the, 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 the point is, is the pressure is important as well. So it's not that you don't want pressure. Mm. It's like they had pressure, but they were still able to laugh and be relaxed in that pressure. And I think it's a really weird, it's a, it's a very strange recipe. Uh, I mean, I still don't know exactly how it works, but I know that you need both. If you only have pressure, I don't think you get to great work. If you're only screwing around, you probably won't get to great work either. Yeah. This has been great, Damon. I just want to wrap this up and ask you um, a question about what they didn't teach you at ad school that you wish they did. Um, well, I didn't go to ad school. What um, they didn't teach you at non-ad school. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, it's interesting because I studied to be a photographer and I was a freelancer for a long time. Um I think the thing that they don't teach you at ad school is that, you know, there's a purity sometimes. And some of the hardest choices you have to make is how to sell something or how to get something made. Um, and I think 
um, that for me could take could save you weeks in your career. I mean, I'll tell you one story that explains what I'm saying. John Hunt and I were were we had to. It was probably a fifty million dollar campaign in thirty two countries, and we had to sell this idea that the bank had to redo its its campaign. And you know, I'm thirty two years old. And we go into this boardroom with, you know, wooden paneling. You know, each each chair has a microphone. You know, it's one of those. And uh, I'm standing there and John Hunt stood up and he put up one slide. And the slide had a whole lot of bank ads on. And he said to the board, can you guys see what's wrong with the slide? So there's 12 guys, all, you know, chartered accountants and lawyers. And they all look at this and he goes, they will eventually go, no, we can't see what's wrong with it. And he goes, I swapped all the logos. So the ad on the left is actually your competition with your logo on. And the one on the right is, you know, the the other bank, you know, with their logo on. So that what that's basically saying is that all bank advertising looks so alike that even the board of this, you know, uh, huge corporation can't tell the difference. That's why we need to redo your your campaign and three minutes later he had it signed off and what that taught me was if you can't frame it in a way that other people can understand something no matter how brilliant the idea you won't sell it and i don't know if they teach that in ad school i don't know if they teach that skill to think about how you're going to present something or sell something because i think that's as important as finding the idea and I mean, there'd be people that would disagree with me and say, no, 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 it's all about the idea. But it's only an idea if it gets made. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there was a time and I um, worked in a creative department where um, a couple of the copywriters were ex-lawyers or had studied law. Yeah. So the ability to write was about um, framing an argument. Yeah. And they were able to present in that, in, in that same way. And they, they would have developed, I guess, the concept yeah. Um, to that, but you, you're exactly right. That that idea of being able to to sell in a way and frame your idea in a way that can be understood. Um, yeah, it's a weird thing because on the one hand, you have to kind of be an introvert. Just going back to your theme of being an imposter, you know, you have to be kind of quite self focused to find the idea, but then you have to sort of turn into a strange extrovert to be able to sell the idea. And I've always thought that might be also one of the reasons you know we feel like imposters because we almost have to be able to change and shift, you know, to do our job. Um, don't know. Yeah, that chameleon effect of, I guess, blending in and at the same time standing out might be part of the Weird, reason huh? why we're not sure, not sure where, we, where we belong. Thanks for joining us today, Damon. It's been great to have you on, uh, on The Imposterous. Cool. Thank you very much, Michael. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Imposterous is produced by Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, the best music and sound house in Australia. The theme music that you're listening to now was created by Hilton Mode of the same company. If you would like to catch up on the other episodes in this series or previous, visit theimposterous.com. For all other updates or to make contact, follow us on Instagram at the underscore imposterous. Imposterous.